Oh man, like seriously, when I'm reading this book all the time, it's amazing. Like I was just when I read it the first time, it was in the middle of all the Brexit stuff, and I was going, oh, "Yeah, same here." It was impossible when I was rereading it for this. It was just as that was all happening, and I was like, "Oh my god." <laughs> Hello and welcome to the second episode of Karl Marx's 18th premiere of Louis Bonaparte reading group series. Today is Thursday the 7th of May 2020 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week I have the new patrons Eddie Maldonado and BK to thank. If you liked today's episode and would like to hear more of this type of thing, perhaps you could consider becoming a patron. For only $5 a month or under $1 an episode, you get two Patreon-only episodes every month, the regular episodes a few days early, and the right to vote on the next reading group series. If you don't have any spare dough, just spread the good commie word and give me a nice iTunes review. Okay, let's jump back into the discussion. Let, let, let's keep going here. James, are you, are you alive? I am indeed alive. The February Revolution was a surprise attack, a seizing of the old society unaware, and the people proclaimed this unexpected stroke a deed of world importance, ushering in a new epoch. On December 2nd, the February Revolution is conjured away as a card sharps trick, and what seems overthrown is no longer the monarchy, but the liberal concessions that have been wrung from it through centuries of struggle. Instead of society having conquered a new content for itself, it seems that the state has only returned to its oldest form, to a shamelessly simple rule by the sword of the monk's cowl. This is the answer to the coup de main, unexpected stroke, of February 1848, given by the coup de tête, rash act, of December 1851. Easy come, easy go. Meantime, the interval did not pass unused. During 1848 to 51, French society, by an abbreviated revolutionary method, caught up with the studies and experiences which in a regular, so to speak, textbook course of development would have preceded the February Revolution. If the latter were to be more than a mere ruffling of the surface, society seems now to have retreated to behind its starting point. In truth, it has first to create for itself the revolutionary point of departure, the situation, the relations, the conditions under which alone modern revolution becomes serious. Okay, who wants to gra- who wants to grapple with this, James? What do you make of this? Bang! <laughs> I think the argument is very complex in this paragraph. Yeah, it is. I think he's saying that he's kind of recognizing that the February Revolution was it came at, it was a, as he says a surprise attack, and it it's unexpected, but it's obviously he he's recognizing the significance of it. But then very swiftly. It's it's almost immediately kind of it it disappears as if like he says like it's a card shop's trick, and again this whole paragraph there's so much kind of amazing kind of uh, linguistic dexterity even in translation, and so he talks about how the revolution is conjured away, it's no longer the monarchy but the liberal concessions that have been wrung away from it through centuries of struggle, so you have the liberal concessions that have been wrung from the monarchy over a great period of time. And then what kind of results from that is that as opposed to, as we were just kind of discussing, society isn't creating 
kind of new content. So there's not a new revolutionary content, but it's that the, the state simply returned to as it was. Again, this idea of the uh, the rule by sword and the monk's cow. So the idea, I guess, of the power of the state and also of kind of church authority. And he says kind of easy come, easy go. So while it's almost like a great rupture has happened because nothing is actually the the content itself has not changed. So nothing is actually really kind of changing there. There's, there's one thing I, I like that I, I've been listening, listening to the Mike Duncan's revolutionary podcast. You know, I, I've really gorged on them in preparation to understand who all these French names are. But like this idea, and I think, I don't know where I, I heard it in, in, in relation to which part of the podcast, but the idea like of these, like idea of history coming in, in, in kind of waves, you know, like a, some kind of like a, you know, like on a beach, a complex system of, you know, molecules of acting under gravity and they come in in waves and they come in and they come out and they push in and they push out. And like, I think Marx seems to be very aware of this kind of cyclical nature of the history and this need for it to push forward again more. It seems like it needs to draw out before it'll go forward again. Yeah, there. the other thing, I guess he's saying here that so if you look at the original French Revolution, it's a very extended process and very chaotic and destructive, right? And if you look at the 1848 to 1851 period, he's kind of saying that like the revolutionary event, it condensed the textbook course of development so much that it was just kind of a blip and then it was gone. And so it didn't have that same kind of massive effect. It's, it's, it's just a mere ruffling of the surface because it was so brief. It kind of, it was like watching uh, highlights of a football game. Yeah. It was like 18, not exactly like 1789 again or whatever, but it was just like, everybody was like, oh yeah, this is where it comes in, it comes out. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. They scored. Oh, well, oh, we won two nil. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, he's saying that, like, we can't recapitulate the French Revolution if we want to have a revolution which will have real consequences. Because we have, like, when we do recapitulate it, what ends up happening is this very abbreviated highlights version of what that was. And, and worse than that, almost, because in the final sentence, he kind of says, society seems now to have retreated to behind its starting point. Mm -hmm. So without what you just mentioned there, it's almost worse. You can you can regress and there can be like a, a kind of a reactionary return, which is, I guess, what we're going to explore as we go through the text. Yeah. So I don't know. Like he says that the, the sword in the monk's cowl is like, you know, the ancien regime has somewhat come back. And I don't know if that's supposed to be an analogy to what the way that the Bourbon the Bourbons were brought back after Napoleon was defeated, or if he's truly saying like this is like back to the ancien regime, it's so bad. Well, all that Frankfurt school talk of regression makes a lot more sense when you look at this paragraph, right? Like yes. it's <laughs> Yeah. That's true. I, I, oh, the other thing I want to mention about Revolutions podcast, uh, since we were talking about it, is that Mike Duncan has been going through the Russian Revolution doing the textbook course of development analysis, right? Like he's saying like, oh, if we analyze this event, 
relative to the events of the French Revolution, we can see that we're at this stage and here's what's the same and here's what's different. Um, and making some occasional analogies to other revolutions, but mainly referring to the French one. So it's, it's interesting to see that analysis happening in just like, you know, the way that Marx is kind of laying out here. Can I, can I just jump in and raise something that was kind of um, interesting to me, especially in the light of what we were kind of discussing or what you guys were discussing over Nares? Do you think that there's some significance in the, in the final paragraph and in this paragraph, how he, in both of the translations I've got open, he refers to it as the social revolution of the 19th century and refers in that final paragraph to society. In terms of kind of setting terms, do you think there's some significance of the way he's using social revolution? Oh, yeah, I do. I think... And I, I just... Yeah, go ahead, Derek. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Though. Because, uh, I, you know, I recently did a super, super close read in historical analysis of the manifesto again, and I realized that there's a big shift between the manifest, like the 1848 to 1852 Marx and Engels and the 1848 Marx and Engels, they were still willing to think of things in national terms. By 1852, they're not. They're no longer willing to conceive of things in the terms of, of society. So you're not having political revolutions because those are merely national. You're having social revolutions, changes in the means of production in the society in which it lives. That's significant. That's larger than just a political revolution. Like a bourgeois revolution is it is not just the upending of absolutism into republicanism. It is also the changing of the entire way you organize social production. That's a different thing than a political revolution. You can you can just overthrow the government and have a peasants revolt and install the same you know a similar form. That's also I think why he keeps on saying like this social revolution had to wear this the form of the past to hide its content because the radicalness it's unleashed. It doesn't even work for bourgeois society. It's doing something totally different, isn't it? It's doing something new. You can't just, like, that's the point that for the social revolution, you can't just wear, you know, your centurion's outfit because you're doing something that wasn't Rome or that wasn't, wasn't the French Revolution. Yeah, and that's the critical difference with 1848 from the original French Revolution, that the social revolution is trying to express itself in the 1848 revolution. And that basically short circuits the bourgeois approach to revolution that the people who want the merely political revolution are trying to enact. And then, you know, those two dynamics end up canceling each other out and resulting in an enormous failure. Which makes the, the accusation of Bonapartism far more damning than I think even the Trotskyists realized it was when they were using it. And if you think about it, for, if you think about it coming from this analysis, I mean, woof, this is, this is harsh. Yeah, it's saying that it wasn't nearly even a, a proper, you know, it wasn't a socialist revolution nearly at all. That would be what you would extrapolate from Marx's analysis here. And there is a sort of, I don't know, there is at once a sense of sort of historical particularity for circumstance that you need to be sensitive to. There's an empiricist portion, but then there's also running throughout this and it becomes more explicit in the prefaces that we didn't read. Marx and Engels both considered this an exemplar of using class struggle analysis to look at what's going on in that historical realm to see how the historical record is produced in the terrain of class struggle. Esri, do you want to take the next chapter, or the next chapter, the next paragraph? Next chapter, eh? 
Shut yeah. Up. Deep breath. <sighs> Just made a cup of tea. Perfect timing. Bourgeois revolutions, like those of the 18th century, storm more swiftly from success to success. Their dramatic effects outdo each other. Men and things seem set in sparkling diamonds. Ecstasy is the order of the day, but they are short-lived. Soon they have reached their zenith, and a long cotton jammer takes hold of society before it learns to assimilate the results of its storm and stress periods soberly. Katzen jammer apparently means cat's whinge. In my yeah. translation, it's, it's written as a long, corpulent <laughs> depression. It, 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 it literally means hangover. Love it. Um, you could think Erica Whelan, but also I was like, Katzen jammer. I know that from German. That, oh, that's what happens when you're drunk. <laughs> Something Marx must have known well, and apparently not the translator. Teetotaling. Cat's whinge. What the? <laughs> I bet this translator was English. No doubt. On the other hand, Proletarian revolutions, like those of the 19th century, constantly criticize themselves, constantly interrupt themselves in their own course, return to the apparently accomplished in order to begin anew. They deride with cruel thoroughness the half-measures, weaknesses, and paltriness of their first attempts, seem to throw down their opponents only so the latter may draw new strength from the earth and rise before them again more gigantic than ever recoil constantly from the indefinite colossalness of their own goals until a situation is created which makes all turning back impossible and the conditions themselves call out hic rotis, hic salta. And then the note here is, here is the rose, here dance, but I've always heard this as here is Rhodes, here jump. These words from Aesop's tale, the swaggerer, addressed to a swaggerer claiming that he had made a remarkable leap in Rhodes, means show right here what you can do. Put up or shut up. This is what it means. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Give me something to break. Man, these translators are lazy. You know, mm. you know when a book hasn't been actually actually hasn't been read that much by how crappy all the translations are. What do you reckon? I, I think this is like one of the most commonly assigned uh, works of Marx in university. Yeah, I'm so uh, it's it so readable. I taught it in high school, which which is funny though, it, how bad the translations are. You taught this in high school. What kind oh, yeah. of revolutionary high school are you going to? Learn? I taught I taught a world government class. So how come you're not getting fired? I do all kinds of shit that I should get fired for, but I don't because I'm awesome. But yeah, but we're not talking about you know sexual proclivities. No, 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 we're not. We're talking about the fact that I have I have bourgeois competence and I am instrumentally useful, Tom. <laughs> 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 Unlike the Irish. Hey, now. Well, there'll be no anti-Irish racism in this here podcast. Here, yeah. This is just unacceptable. Okay, let's talk about the actual paragraph. <laughs> What's he saying here? Sorry, I'm about to lose my train of thought. Kyle, jump in. Well, hey. I, I, I definitely was reminded when he talks about bourgeois revolutions here of the Arab Spring, so-called, right? That, that, that sparkling success and everything seems amazing. Ecstasy is the order of the day. And then the aftermath is just this really bad hangover. Because that was very much a national bourgeois revolution in form, at least. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, explicitly, right? The reason why it was called the Arab Spring is literally a reference to 1848. Which, which makes Occupy like the farce of the farce of the farce. <laughs> yeah, not, not wrong. Not wrong. Well... 
I don't think we can really say Occupy was a revolution. Right? What? No, it's, it's a farce what? of a farce of a farce of a. It's a meta farce. Well, people, I, and you know, those some of those farces of farces are like the highlights of social development, like in terms of you know popular action. That's one of the scary, like in in, ter- in terms of our context, it's kind of a scary thing. Like, there's definitely like more important social actions that have happened, but they all have a sort of pop-up legitimacy than a slow demoralizing emptying of the signifier. Yeah. And I mean, the emotional content of that uh, revolution was like really powerful. Like, you know, seeing the protests in Egypt, uh, the confrontation of the army and all that stuff, like, you know, as a kid, or not a kid, but I was a young adult, it was very stirring. And then, yeah, yeah it's a real I, hangover afterwards. I, I uh, lived in Egypt during the counter-revolution, so uh, we can talk about that if you want to, but it was not fun at all. In a way, like, you want to talk about, like, one of the problems of uh, maybe overwrite, not even proto, bourgeois revolutions in, in the quote-unquote Arab world, they didn't get rid of any of the government ministrations at all. They all were still there. So it wasn't even hard for the Bonapartist turn of the Muslim Brotherhood to be out Bonaparted by the military. It was like, actually, it was farcical in a way that I have trouble talking about because people will think I'm being racist. But like, it was pretty textbook failed and obviously going to do so. Like the social conservatism of the brotherhood immediately reared its head and like they were distracted dealing with that in a way they couldn't deal with the with the military at all. They couldn't deal with bourgeois with like bourgeois counterfactions who were so frustrated with their frankly like kind of incompetent administrations and their focus on Sharia law that um they got outslighted by by the bourgeois factions and the military factions, and the military factions over were able to overcome. You know, the bourgeois factions by the fact that the reactionaries started terror campaigns in response to this. And so that, you know, they were able to reestablish the emergency powers law that they had. I mean, it wasn't just that the the Arab Spring didn't work. It literally did. In the, in the case of Egypt, it did nothing. It actually, like, in some cases, things are worse now than they were, you know, under the uh, Mubarak regime. I will never forget, as long as I live the day when it was in Tahrir Square, when they released the guys on camels. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. That, yeah. That was like something from goddamn like the 18th century fucking reenactment film or something. It yes. Insane. It was farce. James, I saw you. I was, I was just going to uh, say, when he's juxtaposing the nature of the proletarian revolution contra the bourgeois revolution here, I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> again, it's, <laughs> it's so concise and seems you know with the experience of time kind of empirically very true and in a way i find it almost like quite demobilizing it's like jesus is this it i mean i don't know how does everyone else feel about that what do you mean demobilizing it's it's so kind of pithy you know it seems so true to the way that we've experienced things that it almost feels it's like the impossibility of actually creating revolutionary change through a proletarian revolution is almost, I, this is something I actually struggle with personally is, is the difficulty of what we engage with kind of an abstract or theoretical level and how that can 
possibly ever be translated into the kind of social change that we want to see. And when I kind of read something like that, I'm like, ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just interested to see what you guys think. That's, that's really interesting. I don't feel as pessimistic about this. I feel like it's a, it's a statement of the, the character of how these things are bound to unfurl as, you know, the proletariat, like, figure their shit out. Like, revolutionaries are bound to... But this is supposed to be some kind of generative pro process where proletarian revolutions are constantly self-critical, throwing its own, like, factions down in order to make them stronger or something. I don't... I think maybe de Maistre's account of how revolutions tend to go, at least the romantic bourgeois ones, is a little more accurate. <laughs> and I'd like to see something more like what Marx is describing here. I, I also... I don't entirely agree with how neat this uh, schematism is about bourgeois revolutions. Uh, well, okay, I think he qualifies. No, no, he doesn't qualify. He says a bourgeois revolutions, period. I, I think if you go back to the early bourgeois revolutions in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance period, they're very much like this too. Like, you know, they're really abortive and don't necessarily have the same heroic character to them. Um, yeah, but they're not social revolutions. They're mere political. Oh, no, they're not. No, no, no. No, they're not. I, I totally agree with that point. I just think that the, the that kind of like storming swiftly from success to success character is something that comes later in the process of bourgeois revolution, bourgeois revolutionary development. Uh, yeah, in earlier phases, it's less so like that. Yeah, well, it's one of the things that I actually get frustrated with Marxists who don't do their history enough. And I, again, this is why I get totally a little bit annoyed if we want to, if we think this is a call to abandon historical thinking. Because if you read Marx, he's writing about his immediate lived context. But if you look at like the grand history of this stuff, like particularly if you start with the English examples and the Italian city-state examples... They go from failure to failure to failure to failure to failure for whatever reason. Usually they weren't materially possible. Did to success, did to success, did to overrightness. And in the failure, I mean, and even in the case of the, of the English Civil War, I mean, England still to this day, even though it was like, it is really the, at least the co-birthplace, if not the birthplace of bourgeois society in Europe, it also has a bunch of weird stuff that it's futile that you, it even Europe proper does not have because it's bourgeois revolution didn't totally succeed and they haven't had another one. Yeah, compared to and like Ireland, moving from living in Ireland to moving living in England, say a simple thing like you buy your house in London, you don't buy your house, you buy a lease because you got to pay fucking, you got to yeah. pay a constant tithe, tied to some bloody lord. There's loads of forms. All the, the, the look at the distribution of property ownership in England. It's owned by the church, the state, the landed gentry, and I think it's as low as ten. And some of the universities, Oxford and Cambridge, own a huge swathe. I think it's like ten yeah. percent is owned by the proles. That's kind of incredible. Yeah, no, so definitely. But also, there's that uh, thing of you know first initiator kind of disadvantage. It's why American television, color television, look crap all the way until like about 10 years ago because yeah. they wants to have it. And, and why we have slower internet. I mean, so there, there's definitely that. And so you have these weird hangover forms. And the other thing that I think, you know, if you want to look at the weirdnesses of bourgeois revolutions, Marx does not deal with the settler colonial states. 
that's weird because you want to talk about spring, you know, like, yes, Napoleon spreads bourgeois revolutions all over the world in so much that he also converts the the Spanish empire into bourgeois revolutions and also inspires all these revolutions against the center colonial powers in the new world. So in that case, it's still true. But these patterns are actually different and weirder and way more abortive and even way more violent in the center colonial areas than they are in the mainland. And Marx doesn't deal with that in this. And so I think that complicates things too. And I don't say this as like some kind of malice or something, because you guys know me, I'm not. But like, it's something you do have to deal with. I, I, I call myself a meowist. I like looking at cat videos. Does that count? <sighs> Tom. Um, sorry. Yeah, sorry, before we go to the next chapter, just when we're talking about Dire Spring, I can't not say that when the, the the height of Darab Spring just kicked off, I went to like one of these stop the war things in Conway Church. Have you been there, James? Conway Hall. I have indeed, yeah. I, I semi-regularly go to something called the City of London Phonograph Society, which is guys of a similar vintage to our CPGB PCC comrades who listen to uh, <laughs> wax cylinders, the <laughs> earliest uh, form of recorded sound. So that's what right. I've been to Conway Hall for. You're really? Really? You're such a yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Re- really? Yeah, I work wow. as a I work as a sound archivist. So um, wow. these are my these are my people. Wow. Yes, oh, that's kind of awesome. You know what's interesting about this? So I'm also thinking about some other later Marx stuff when Marx is writing the Vera Sirlik again, and he says we should not fear being called archaic. Like we shouldn't fear being interested in prior forms. So. This is rhetorically really, really well crafted, and, and that's really, really parallel. But I'm not sure that Marx means it to be a vulgarly perfect analysis oh, yeah. either. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, you have to learn from history, sure, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Th- no, this is this is more about like doing the translation from the very powerful and good rhetoric here to theoretical conclusions, and you know how we should interpret that. Yeah, I think I think to, to to go back to kind of the feeling I get, I think what the feeling I get is the is the recoiling from the uh, the indefinite colossusness of the goal is the kind of what I get from that paragraph. But Tom, I feel we interrupted you telling us about what you did at Conway Hall. Oh yeah, sorry, I went into Conway Hall. It was uh, just right at the, literally the it was like a day one or day two of the Arab Spring, and Conway Hall. If you've gone to the meetings there, the political meetings, there's usually like maybe a, a hundred or two hundred people. But this time the hall was jammed. I don't know how many was in there. I would say a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred. And it was because London is like full of people from the Middle East. And there was like people hanging from the from the rafters. Somebody would give a talk about Cairo and you know how we're going to march all the way to like Gaza or something like this. And then the place would erupt. And then like there was guys from Libya and they were like they were chanting and singing. And I swear to God, I was in the middle of this and it was like the greatest political thing I have ever been to without a shadow of a doubt. It was like something, you know, like if you watch those, what was that film with the only American film about the Russian revolution with you one that was you square with Woody Allen and Reds. Is it Reds? It was like something from one of those scenes from, from that film of the Russian revolution. It was just fucking, it was epic. I was hyper for about a oh, year yeah. after going to that one thing. No, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel that. I feel like, you know, Russian, you know, Russian revolutions can still get my blood pumping or something. But it's like after after seeing what people make of it, you know, it's like nothing I really want to associate with myself culturally, even if I gain a certain kind of like 
huh, things can change and then go horribly wrong. But, you know, maybe things could change and not go horribly wrong someday. Kind of energy from it. Derek, if you read, though, you're going to have to read at a, at a finite pace. Are you up for that? For the rest, every fairly competent observer, even if he had not followed the course of French development step by step, must have a presentiment that an unheard of fiasco was in store for the revolution. And it was enough to hear that the self-complacent how the victory in which the Democrats congratulated each other on the expected gracious consequences on the second Sunday in May 1852. In their minds, the second Sunday in May 1852 had become a fixed idea, a dogma, like the day on which Christ should appear and the millennium begin. In the minds of the Chaleists, as ever, weakness had taken refuge in the brief miracles, fancied the enemy overcome when he had only conjured away in the imagination, and it lost an understanding of the present and the passive glorification of the future and which was in store for it, and the deeds of it in petto. Something up one's sleeve is what that means but which it merely did not want to carry out yet. Those heroes who seek to disapprove their demonstrated incapacity by mutually offering each other their sympathy and getting together in a crowd had tied up their bundles, collected their laurel wreaths in advance, and were just then engaged in discounting an exchange market, the republics in Partibus, for which they had already providently organized the government personnel with the calm of their unassuming disposition. December 2nd struck them like a thunderbolt from a clear sky, and the people that in the periods of posthumous depression let their inner apprehension be drowned by the loudest brawlers will perchance be convinced themselves that the times are past when the cackle of geese could save the capital. Okay, there's one bit there where he talks about this date, the second Sunday in May 1852. This was the day of elections when Louis Bonaparte's term was supposed to expire. So all these liberal bourgeois types said, oh, well, because um, Louis Napoleon was elected president in 1848, but he was only allowed to sit for one term. And they thought, oh, well, when, when his term is up, then we're fine. We get rid of him and everything will be, everything will be grand. But they couldn't see what was happening in society or what what was going on. They were just like obscured by the legalism of stuff. And then their whole world fell asunder. So to me, this is also damning for our left wing love of European cadillos who end up getting cooed by right wingers. Because while those are coups and they are right wingers and a lot of those people have popular legitimacy, we should have have been wanting that in the first place. We, 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 like, even, you know, Marx does seem to think that, like, Bonapartism has, in its initial phase, some progressive content. In its later phases, it, it, it just falls down. Everybody thinks, oh, you know, we're going we're gonna to be through with this, or, oh, we're, we're not going to be, and we'll be able to force ram it through with our executive leadership. And neither thing usually ends up ringing true. I mean, when you read this, man, it's hard not to really come down hard on contemporary Marxist and left-wing activists being really crappy at understanding their primary text. In what way specifically do you mean here? Because we keep on hoping that like, we can somehow Bonaparte our way through these reforms or that we can do it by pure, you know, formal democracy. Neither thing is going to happen. It's just not. It doesn't work. It didn't work as reaction either. One has to wonder then what the historical sort of accumulated Marxist tradition is. 
from a Marxian lens in a Marxian framework and what the difference between a framework and like ideology in the positive sense. I mean, you could be reading a lot of this as in order to have the social revolution of the 19th century, this optimistic man is writing. We essentially need to transcend ideology in so many words. I mean, maybe he wouldn't say this, but like, I think this is like one way of looking at this because there's a sort of like ideological mystification and fetish made of the previous, you know, cultural, you know, forms of revolution. And then the content is supposed to burst out of it and not replace it with something else. Most of the critical theory left now believes that ideology is trans-historical and there's no escape from it. It's a very different picture than what Marxists actually believe. And a lot of these people are not just the political Marxists, but people that think of themselves as methodological Marxists. And that's like maybe one of the more puzzling things that the more rudite bookish alternative Marxism is also kind of suspect in a similar reactionary way as the political tradition for parallel reasons. Maybe this whole methodological like edifice was built to defend a certain kind of politics. And if you put the politics aside, you can't just be like, oh, but the methodology is fine because the methodology was developed in this instrumental way against like, you know, the wishes of its own namesake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. This this paragraph is one that stayed with me for years. I always think back to it whenever I see the latest political disaster, the latest uh, absurd belief in uh, political process and formalism. It, 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 is, it is a very uh, powerful paragraph for sure. What's funny about the formalism though, is it also seems like I said, there's a double critique because the idea that you can put this behind strongman figures and historical personas, which frankly is probably not of like radical liberals and who are sympathetic to us, but actually probably something we on the far left are more given to doing is criticizing our, our historical leaders, our theorists are both. This also seems to be pretty damning of that too. It cuts in a lot of ways that should make us very uncomfortable about where we have gone. Dan Strait. Yeah. I don't know. It makes me want, you know, an end to the cycle of samsara of ideology following ideology following ideology. You have to abolish class to abolish the ideologies that hide the function of class, yo. If that's the Marxian framework, then how do you ever really navigate your way out? I'm not sure. I have been, I have literally been worried about that for, I don't know, 10 years. Like I sometimes wonder like if this is the thing you can call Marxism on is that you get stuck in this loop. The thing is though, and I'm still not sure exactly why this is, you very rarely see Marxists adopt the sharpest tools for their job in concert with Marxian thought. You just don't see it very often. And it seems like it's not impossible. There's just sort of social filters for why this happens. It doesn't seem like, you know, there are some people that claim that Marx's thought is inimical to model building or law, like, or, or, or thinking in terms of like modes of production, having their own laws, which if you've read Marx is like obviously not true, 
but there is a, a sense of like trans historical laws that he's very skeptical of. So it has an air of truth to it. I don't know. I, I just, I wonder why you don't see it as much because I think on the level of individual like minds or people that are talking to each other, I think it is possible to get closer to the truth than farther or s- s- closer to saying something useful than not. And it just doesn't seem like there's a consistent good faith attempt to do that among Marxists. When we're looking at the 18th Brumaire and the motivations for dressing yourself up in revolutionary traditions, it gives you a good explanation why someone isn't going about the most rational way to do something that they say that they want to do. You know, they say they want to work towards communist revolution any way they can, but their practice says something different. And this resonance, this tendency to get lost in history because you're supposed to strategically turn to history, it's, you know, it's a good sort of explanation why that might be. I've got a solution. What we need is we just got to get good memes. You see, you get like the best meme. Oh, yeah. And that the ultimate meme will destroy all other memes. And then we're, then we're there. That, that's, that's what we need. The rhizome okay. meme. One yeah. cool trick. I tried it with that one of Worf and Esdry. The one where he goes, it is not possible to both win and lose at the same time. And Esdry goes, <laughs> well, what about uh, winning employee of the month? <laughs> and Worf looks into the distance. <laughs> That's it. Like, we need like the best memes and then we'll just destroy all ideology with our, with our Uber ideology, ideological memes. Right, let's keep going. Will we keep, will we, will we? Will we... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I I could riff off, you know, how this parallels a bunch of weird reactions to systematic thought, but let's move on. Yeah, or weirdly, conservatives will try to claim this into ideology too, but do so. Be- but since I have no class base, like it becomes a way to just hide ideology in ideology. Yeah, but that's also what it is for Marxists. That's Ooh. why they can do that. It's built that yeah. way. I mean, honestly, and I've said this since I was very young, that most of the best reactionary tricks were all learned from Marxist failures trying to pull stunts themselves. And we all learned it from bourgeois failures when they also didn't pull their stunts off. Let's, you know, give credit where it's due. We're stuck in a repetition compulsion. And now let's read the next chapters or paragraphs or whatever. Okay, I'll hit this one. It's been a long time. The Constitution, the National Assembly the dynastic parties, the blue and red Republicans, the heroes of Africa, the thunder from the platform, the sheet lightning of the daily press, the entire literature, the political names and the intellectual reputations, the civil law and the penal code, liberté, égalité, fraternité, and the second Sunday in May 1852, all have vanished like a phantasmorgia before the spell of a man whom even his enemies do not make out to be a sorcerer. Universal suffrage, seems to have survived only for the moment, so that, with its own hand, it may make its last will and testament before the eyes of the world and declare in the name of the people itself, all that exists deserves to perish. It is not enough to say, as the French do, that their nation was taken unawares. Nations and women are not forgiven. (laughs) Here we go. Nations and women are not forgiven the unguarded hour in which the first adventurer who came along could violate them. Such turns of speech do not solve the riddle, but only formulate it differently. 
it remains to be explained how a nation of 36 millions can be surprised and delivered without resistance into captivity by three knights of industry. Well, this is supposed to be some kind of dialectical point of saying that, you know, they've been hoodwinked by, by this cunning politician, you know, as an external explanation doesn't give you the internal disposition of the proletariat that made them vulnerable to this, right? This is like Chomsky's critique of Lenin. He was just really cunning. Right, right. Um, and however, Marx chooses the excellent moral example of, you know, a woman being raped and how that there's uh, some kind of internal vulnerability to her character that just seems very moralistic and victim blaming and bad. And um, yeah, it's a bad, it, it, it's a rape joke, right? Like it's a yeah. joke. It's, it's a rape joke. All right. I'm, I'm going to be the, the person who says, you know, yeah, you can't, you can't use the past example to get out of it, but he's also saying that this doesn't actually explain anything. They're like saying that the woman is not forgiven for being unguarded when the adventure comes along to violate them and neither is the nation is also saying that like, you're just, it's, it is a circular assertion. It doesn't mean anything to say that, that it doesn't explain to you how any of it happened. But like, I understand the causal point, you know, that she's been catched unawares, but what was it about her that made her able to be caught unawares? And that's what Marx is really interested in. Do you see? Yeah. (laughs) You know, she was wearing like, you know, the right. Essentially, yeah. I don't know. I I I, I actually do. I, I get the point, but I, and uh huh. But I also just like I've read nineteenth century literature for long enough to be like that's this is like every thirty fucking seconds in most of the stuff. So this is true. This is a, this is normal <laughs> and romantic writing, right? Yeah, but, so, but uh, so like I'm actually surprised that this is as little as we get. Which is not an excuse for it, but I'm, I, I don't know. I, I always find it very, very somewhat, not just problematic, but just like the nasty metaphor is a nasty metaphor. Let's note it. But like, it doesn't say anything to get caught up in that either. Like you can go down that rabbit hole for an Derek, hour. Derek, or... I, I know you love when crowds make rape jokes, but we have to move on. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <That's>... So how, <laughs> how did the Knights of Industry rape France? But more importantly, what is it about the the character of the French people? You know, what were they wearing? Really, it is is something. He is something saying interesting about democracy, though. That like one of the things that you'll notice about democratic imperatives is the more mass democracy is, the more it fucking hates democracy. Like particularly in a representative system, like there's something about that structure that leads to a very anti-democratic impulse over and over again. And if we don't see this right now. Since everybody in the United States, like, isn't really a Bonapartist, that's not fair. But they all kind of, like, have a boner for the executive doing things the executive can't even do. This is a problem. This is, like, a real issue that we're, we're kind of, like, papering over. But it's more of an expression against, against the politics that exists. It's against, like, the sphere of, like, this alienated political sphere where people use rhetoric and rhetorical tricks to make them think one thing. In actuality, they're not doing what the voters want them to do. They're doing what the bourgeoisie want them to do. You know, yeah, but but but, but that's but again, that's actually can that's actually doing the thing that Marx is saying that doesn't explain anything. 
the the point isn't to say like oh trump tricked everyone or you know like yes yes hitler hitler just hoodwinked the german proletariat you know it's to to do explanation to to do causal stuff and to talk about internal development of something that makes it able to interact in a certain way it's really trying to get at a dialectical point I think also in this, like, the one big thing that we haven't really hit is just, like, when they made everything, like, everybody gave every man the vote, you know, most most men were peasants. So the, the structure of the society was probably a lot more reactionary than the political activism of the society. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Marx would put too much stock in the limited franchise being an absolute limit on uh, political resistance to Louis Napoleon. And he's also saying the franchise was unlimited for this. And so why is that an issue? So yeah, there might be class issues that, that lead to that. And honestly, that, that like we're reading this, like trots read stuff later that a lot of, a lot of petty proprietor interest and peasant interests do have a tendency to like authoritarians to force things through. And that is implied here, but there's other stuff in this but I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't even make. I don't want to really say that they're like just kind of reactionary. I kind of want to make the the case a little bit for like the the peasantry is that you know the revolutions happen in this sometimes happen happen in the city, and they feel alienated from them. Right. And, you know, and it's not that they're all reactionary in some like right wing sense. It it feels like it's the other and this thing, and they kind of want to return to some kind of existing pre-existing kind of order as opposed to disorder right so what's interesting about that is i think can think of like three communists who really really thought about the the abolition of the city countryside problem bordega bukharin and bukharin's rightist opposition and marx actually all see this as a problem that plagues bourgeois and proletarian society because the division between urban and countryside does mean that the urban actually do take advantage of the countryside in a way that even when they're agrarian workers and not peasants, like say in England, where the weird sharecropping system effectively mandated that you didn't have the development of, of like properly speaking landowning peasants, that you still have rural urban divide that leads to rural reaction because the, the rural area feels like it's being basically fucked by the city and frankly isn't wrong. And so that was something that like basically only three communists have really tried to deal with. And I think the reason why so few communists try to deal with it is because it's a hard problem. Like it's not an easy fix, but it's implied. Like when you ask about like, why does democracy keep on flipping on itself? The more massive the franchise is, the less democratic what it votes in, in a Republican form, well, there's there's reasons for it because of internal tensions, and you have to ask those questions as to why. And maybe we should get to the to Marx's answer about that instead of like you know going around the question so much because he does try to answer it. Yeah, I just want to bring up the very nice turn of phrase: "All have vanished like a phantasmagoria before the spell of a man whom even his enemies do not make out to be a sorcerer." That that gets at uh, the. The kind of astounding turn of events. Like, this pathetic individual has cast a spell on the whole country, despite lacking any skills of sorcery himself. Trust a Dungeons and Dragons freak to, come to, to highlight that sentence. I do not play Dungeons and Dragons as slander. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ivan answered Esri's question and said, what, what was the French nation wearing that they deserved what happened to them? And I'd say... It was that was a rhetorical beret. question, Tom. There's no need to answer it. It's the beret. It's definitely the beret. All right, Tom. On this episode, you heard the team tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. The artwork for the show was created by the Korean artist and author of the 2019 Marx Engels illustration book. You can check out links to his work and Twitter account in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats. Thank you.